We're nearing the end of our series on Paul's first letter to Timothy. Um, as we've noted throughout this series, Paul is writing to Timothy, as he says in uh, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, so that they may know how they ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress for truth. The church is God's house. The church is God's household, God's family. And as Paul has charged Timothy to help establish and oversee this church, this community of believers, he wants to clarify what kind of family we ought to be together. We've used this image throughout the series. I think it's a helpful one, this image of of a family crest. And, And on God's family crest are various emblems that communicate what kind of family we should be. What our, what our values are as a Christian community. We've mentioned a few of these emblems before, like truth, love. We should be people of truth. We should be people of love, people of humility, people of order. Noted for our leadership and also for our service. Last week we talked about uh, the importance of discipline, of training in godliness. And here in chapter 5, Paul continues this theme of how how the family ought to act, how they ought to behave in this household of God. So let's let's jump right in here. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul says uh, this to to Timothy. Do not rebuke, do do not give harsh criticism to an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And then he says here in verse 3, focusing on the widows, honor the widows who are, as he says, truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show their godliness. We talked about that last week. To show their godliness to their own household to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She was truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But she who is Self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. And so command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he's denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. In verse 9, let the widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. But he says, refuse to enroll the younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. And so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. What he's talking about there, you'll see later, he's not condemning remarriage after a spouse has died, but he's he's condemning those uh, whose spouses have died and then they've gone and married those who were not Christians, abandoning their former faith. He said, besides that, they learned to be idlers going about from house to house, not only idlers, but gossips too, and busybodies, saying what they should not. And so I would have younger widows marry, you see, and bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let me stop right here. We'll circle back around to the rest of chapter 5 here in just a bit. 
In, the, in these first few verses, Paul really lays the groundwork for um, the kind of church culture that should define God's family, should define God's household. Paul breaks this down into these four demographic groups, right? He's talking about older men and younger men. He's talking about older women and younger women. And the, the church should be a kind of family. We should think about each other in those kind of familial terms and have a relationship of mutual respect and love and affection. Paul calls Timothy to respect older men. Don't be, don't be harsh with the saints who have gone before you. Instead, encourage an older man as you would a father or a grandfather. Be loving and kind and respectful. Think, treat younger men, he says, as brothers. I don't want to read too much into this passage, but it's interesting, I think, that Paul says specifically to, that older men are to treat younger men as brothers and not as sons, even as Paul himself treats Timothy as a spiritual son. I think he's saying something about the church creating this kind of fraternal culture, this culture of, 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 of sibling connectedness, of, of serving one another, not a patronizing culture. It takes a lot of humility for a 50-year-old man to treat a 20-year-old man like a brother. But that's the kind of culture Paul's calling Timothy to create in this church. This is what is fitting in the household of God. He says, treat older women as, as mothers with, with gentleness, with care, with, with service, with attention and focus. And treat younger women, he says, as sisters in all purity. Not as objects, but as loving siblings. This body is familial. Its, it's bonds are familial. In this sense, we, we look out for each other as the people of God. The good of the group is dependent on the good of the individual. We give ourselves in service to one another as the people of God. You know, I think we've said before, you're only as happy as your least happy kid. I know that as a parent. I think that's certainly true. I think there's something to that as the family of God, that we, we mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We are interconnected and interdependent. And Paul then focuses on how we care for this one particular group within the household of God, the, the widows. It may be surprising to you as you read this passage how much space that Paul devotes to the widows, but the care of the widows was very central to the ancient church. And the widows really serve as, as one example of the most vulnerable within the Christian community. This is how James, Jesus' brother, will talk about undefiled religion in his book. He said, he said that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Of course, this passage can apply, as it does here in 1 Timothy, to the literal orphans or widows. But this, the, the, the phrase orphans and widows also serves as a kind of euphemism for the most vulnerable in the community. That we as God's people are mindful and caring of the most vulnerable within our family. Marcus spent some time a few weeks ago talking about uh, the office of deacons. And I know we'll spend uh, more time in the coming weeks and months talking about deacons. Uh, and the, the, the office of deacons was originally established in the book of Acts. We see this, this need to care for widows was so central to the ancient church. And the need was so great in the early church. Uh, this was, of course, before, before Medicare, Medicaid, and retirement accounts, and Social Security. This was the, the church's responsibility, even as it is now, even in spite of all those other services. That the church is called to care for this most vulnerable group within its midst. But the need was so great there in the early church, we read about it in the book of Acts, that, that the elders were being pulled away from their primary responsibility of, of leading and feeding the congregation 
by the needs of the most vulnerable. And so they established this role of deacons, this office of deacons, these lead servants in the church to care for the widows. You're welcome to turn with me, but I'll read for you in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. This is now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. So this is in the earliest days of the church. The church is growing and they're trying, to, they're trying to figure out what does it mean when you gather a group of people like this together? How do we care for one another? How do we look out for one another? What does it really mean to be the family of God? And it says in those days the disciples were increasing in number and then a complaint came from the Hellenists about the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, the distribution of, of, of food and care and services. And so the 12 disciples, they summoned this full number of disciples and they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve the tables. Their four brothers pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So, so they're, they're seeing that, that there's this critical responsibility of... There's the spirit of God blowing in among us. There's this critical responsibility for the elders and teachers of the church to, to preach and to teach and to pray. I can tell my family's laughing at me because my hair is going. It's okay. I'm going to go get my ball cap in my uh, car. The elders are there called to, to teach and to feed. We talked about that in, in 1 Timothy 3. That they're, they're, they're leading and they're feeding the congregation. They're there to give food and to pray and to lead. But there's work to be done. Right? You got to set up the chairs. You got to put out the sound equipment. You got to care for the children. You got to care for the widows. You got to do this work of ministry. Well, what does this look like? He says, let's appoint these men to do that. The apostles essentially ordain these seven men as the first deacons of the early church, set apart there for this unique role, freeing up the elders to pray and teach and lead by caring for the most vulnerable. And here in 1 Timothy 5, Paul provides a kind of list of qualifications for the widows deserving the special care and attention. Paul uses the term, those who are truly widows, which is interesting. Those who, those who have no one else to care for them. Who are those most vulnerable in the community? Where, where is the greatest need? Where is there the greatest need and the least help? That, that care should be devoted to this specific group. And there, there are those who have no relatives, those who have a history of godly character. It's kind of similar to what he's doing with the elders and the deacons. He's, he's establishing a list of qualifications for this group who should be cared for in the church. People who cannot care for themselves, who've, who are serving and have served the community. He says the widows who do, do have family should be cared for by them so as not to overburden the church. Those who have children and grandchildren, those who are younger and could remarry. And he singles out those who are idlers or gossips or busybodies, those who are not truly widows. In this sense, they should not be a burden to the church. The application for us, church, you can think about this as another emblem on our family crest, is that the church should be known for, and we should be working hard at, protecting the most vulnerable among us. We should be watchful and careful to protect and to honor the most vulnerable among us. This is another one of our family emblems, just as James suggested before. And then Paul transitions again to talking about the elders. So it's interesting that he's putting these two groups together and he's circling back around. He's saying, on the one hand, we should be protecting the most vulnerable. And then he goes and begins to talk about those who are most powerful, those who are overseeing the church, the elders. And he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. 
For the scripture says, and he quotes the Old Testament, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. And he says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Most commentators would say, all the saints, rebuke them in front of the congregation so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you, keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty then in the laying on of hands. Don't be hasty in ordaining men for this office, nor take part in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. Paul lays out a few guiding principles here that the elders who devote themselves, who are working hard vocationally at preaching and teaching, those who, those who labor in this way should be considered of double honor. He's talking about, he's talking about compensation. And they should be cared for by the church. Elders should not be motivated by financial gain, as it mentioned already in 1 Timothy 3. And yet they should be well cared for by the church of God. And they should also be held to a higher standard of accountability. Paul urges Timothy to admit only credible charges against an elder. But also when a charge is credible, and when an elder persists in sin, to rebuke this elder in front of the entire congregation. Think about what that does to the community of God. To rebuke him publicly so that all may stand in fear. And so for this reason, Paul says, Timothy, not to be hasty in, in ordaining men for this office. So you see the tension there, right, with the elders. High honor and high accountability, right? High honor and high accountability. These are, these are other marks of, on our emblem of, of, of our family crest in God's household that we are a church who, who is who's consistent in working hard at protecting the most vulnerable, and yet we are also a church that is working hard to hold the most powerful accountable. Two very important emblems on our family crest. These should be important values for us, church, distinguishing marks for the family of God. And, and of course, sadly, I'm even thinking of this week, stories that have merged over the last several days of, of organizations neglecting these two crucial responsibilities. I'm thinking of, I'm sure you guys have heard the story uh, and have, have seen the report of, of Ravi Zacharias, who have influenced many uh, in our generation. This is a terrible story of an organization who neglected these two critical responsibilities of protecting the most vulnerable and holding the most powerful accountable. And yet this is what the church is called to. This is the kind of community we ought to be as a people Terrible consequences occur when we are not caring for the vulnerable and keeping the powerful accountable. Paul adds this brief parenthetical note to Timothy specifically about himself, not to drink only uh, water, but also to use a little wine for the sake of his health. And then he adds these two other uh, bits of instruction, seemingly unrelated bits of instruction. He says in verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them the judgment. But the sins of others, they appear later. So also the good works of some are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden forever. What's Paul getting at there? I think Paul's actually wrapping up this section in terms of what godly leadership and a godly lifestyle look like, what godly pastoral ministry and oversight look like. Leadership is rarely about... And this applies, uh, of course, to church leaders, but I think it also applies to, to parents and, and so many of us, of us in, in positions of authority. Leadership is rarely about mere uh, strategy, 
or clever tactics. It's just not. It can't be reduced to that. And Paul, and that's what Paul's getting at. It, it, leading, leading a godly life of service in general and serving as a Christian leader in particular, the, the best way forward is rarely obvious. It's not obvious. The straight way is not always clear. It takes, it takes wisdom to live a godly life. It takes submission to God's sovereignty. It takes trust in his spirit to lead in a godly way. It's not always immediately obvious what we should do in any situation. Can I get an amen from a parent, right? It's not always immediately obvious what's best to do in any given situation. It, it, takes, it takes wisdom to give care where care is needed. It's not even obvious in this very specific small area of church ministry that Paul is addressing here, the care of widows. Even among the care of widows, it's not always so clear who is deserving of the care, who needs the attention of the church. Leading well assumes a kind of connection and proximity to real people, to real lives. Leadership in, in the church, leadership in the home requires uh, us to, to know individuals intimately, to know their needs, to, to serve them well, to, to guard against abuse and, and misuse. In this case, in the church, uh, the misuse of the church's funds or misuse of the church's energy or attention. It takes, it takes wisdom and it takes discernment to call this larger family together, some, some of whom have biological connections to one another, to be the family of God together. There's, there's order here. There's structure here. There's a trellis. But there's also a faith in the sovereign God. There's a, there's a dependence on the sovereignty of God. And what he's saying there in those, those last couple of verses in 24 and 25 is that, is that need and character and sin and all those things, those are, those are sometimes exposed over time. It's not always obvious and easy to discern. Sometimes sins are easy to spot, right? In the church, in our family, in our own heart. And sometimes they're buried deep. Sometimes it takes weeks or years or months for those to emerge. And sometimes godly character is easy to spot. Sometimes godly character is easy to fake. And sometimes godly character takes a while to emerge and to develop and grow. And Paul is encouraging his child in the faith. He's, he's bringing him close as a father with a son. He's saying, he's like, yes, there's order. Yes, there's strategy. Yes, there's a, a right way to do these things. But you know what? You're not always going to know. You're not going to see what's happening beneath the surface. He's urging Timothy in this, in this way and leading and exercising authority and exercising discipline and allocating resources and attention to go slow. Don't be hasty in the laying out of hands, but trust in the sovereignty of God. There's no, there's no silver bullet to leadership. Leadership in your own life, leadership in the church. There's no easy answer, but we work hard to protect the most vulnerable we work hard to hold the most powerful accountable, and we know that we rarely see all that's happening beneath the surface. Leading a family is complicated and complex, isn't it? Leading my small family is complicated and complex with, with very few easy answers or quick solutions. And yet this is what this is what we're called to do. This is what Paul is calling Timothy and the leaders of the church to do. 
to live in this family together, to care for one another, to to look out for one another, to, to honor one another, to hold one another accountable, and to trust God all along the way because our mission together as a family is so critical. I saw an article this week by a woman named Harriet Connor. She's the author of a book called Big Picture Parents, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Life. And and she wrote this. She said, in in, in ancient biblical times, a family was much more than than a private haven of affection. It was a productive unit spanning generations. And then she actually quoted Nancy Piercy, who we had speak here, uh, I think, in 2019. And Nancy said this in her book, Love Thy Body. Before the Industrial Revolution, the home performed a host of practical functions. It was a place where people educated children. They cared for the sick and elderly. They ran family businesses. They served customers and the community alike. And they produced a surplus to help and care for the poor. The home reached out to this wider society on mission together. She continues, accordingly, belonging to, and she's quoting here from 1 Timothy 3, belonging to this household of God means more than just spending quality time together. It means people of all generations, and look at the church, it means people of all generations working shoulder to shoulder in this shared family business of bringing the love of Jesus in both word and deed to the community around us and to one another. She says our, our, our churches become stronger, not by, not, not by denouncing the, the love within a, a specific family, but by calling on families together to open themselves up to gospel priorities. To to what extent is your family opened up to gospel priorities? In other words, our our immediate families find their true purpose in giving themselves to the family of God. Do you hear that? Your family will find its true purpose in giving itself to the family of God. And the family of God will find its true purpose in living out the principles of the most loving and caring and watchful and protective and instructive family there is. Your family needs the family of God. The family of God needs your family. This family of God needs your family. We need more godly families because our mission is the same. To live as fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of Christ who is our head. Marcus read earlier from this uh, book of Ephesians that Paul wrote to this, this church directly, to the members directly, to remind them that they are together God's family. And he said this, he said, He came, to, he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace, peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to this one spirit to the Father, so then you. So listen to this church. Paul is saying this to those Ephesians, and he's saying this to us now. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. You're no longer disconnected individuals. You are fellow citizens and saints and members of this household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom this whole structure, this whole thing is being joined and held together grows into this holy temple of the Lord. In Him, you are being built together into this dwelling place. You see how the sacred language, this Old Testament language that He's using of you and your life and your family? 
You, you, aren't, you aren't disconnected individuals when you come out here and sit in this courtyard. You're not disconnected individuals when you go into your job on Monday morning. You are, you are brought into this interconnected, interdependent family of God, saints and members of this household. You are being held together in this family as the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What does it mean to be members of the household of God? It means that we're part of a family. To, to put it more bluntly, it, it means that we're more than just a collection of individuals. That's hard for our modern, western, independent ears to hear. But that's the language that Paul uses regularly, this, this language of, of body and connection. We're more than just a collection of individuals with individual needs and priorities. Our, our individual health, your individual health, your family's health and joy and growth and care and stability is deeply connected to the health and joy and growth and care and stability of this community, the community of God's household. In this community, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're brothers and sisters in a family. You're being, you're being held together. Think of that term. You're being held and joined together. Some of us feel so torn apart, so disconnected, so isolated, so alone. And I think for many of us, it's because we pull away from this body that we are made to be connected to. We are being joined and held together as God's family, growing into Christ together, a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. This is my prayer for us, Redeemer, that we would be a people known for our, our care and compassion towards one another, especially the most vulnerable among us, in ways that will be demanding of each of us as individuals. It's going to take something from us to hold one another accountable, to serve as a community together, to, to hold the most powerful to a higher standard of accountability. And in all of this, we are, we are trusting in, we are resting in, we are growing in our confidence in the sovereignty of God and the care of our Savior. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this word. God, I pray that we would be this kind of community that you were calling this Ephesian church to, God, that you were calling us to now. God, that we would be encouraged by the truth that we are no longer strangers and aliens. God, we don't even have to be strangers to ourselves. You have, you have integrated us into who you are. You have brought us into a larger family, connected us and given us a mission. God, I pray that you would forgive us of our uh, tendency to isolate. You would forgive us our tendency to go, go it alone. And God, that you would... You would put in our souls, God, you would put in our guts, our hearts would burn with this urgency to be a part of this family together on mission. God, to live our lives out for something beyond ourselves, even something beyond our most immediate family, because we know, God, and we confess together that the needs of our most immediate family is to be a part of this bigger family. So God, help us. God, be with us this morning. God, help us to worship you. Even now, as we prepare to take communion, God, that we would remember your sacrifice for us. We would look to you as our only hope and Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.